Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Dale Finnegan and Doug Kretzinger. And now with our first story, here is Doug. And Mayor Rhode Island to move forward together is the headline. Tom's highlights economic growth and improvements. It is written by Grace Kinnicutt. Rock Island is moving forward together, its mayor said, building on a year that saw investment in economic development and new projects launched. Before Mayor Mike Toms stood at the podium in the large event room at Bally's Quad Cities Casino and Hotel to give his speech Monday, former mayor Mark Schwiebert introduced Toms and gave his own speech. Schwiebert, who was the city's longest-serving mayor, said improving and investing in the city couldn't be done without the help of partnerships, and city officials continued to work to build on the history of Rock Island and create a better community. Rock Island is a community of creativity, diversity, productivity, and prosperity, Schwiebert said. Tom's annual state of the speech State of the City speech highlighted investments and improvements around the city and accomplishments from 2023 and how the city plans to move forward together with partners as it continues to grow. Upcoming projects such as downtown and West End revitalization were highlighted, along new programs city departments plan to implement and how partnerships continue to be one of the biggest factors to move forward. The city is investing in the future and poised ahead in 2024 strengthened by its community partnerships, Tom said. We move forward with resiliency, inclusion, and collaboration. Economic uh, development and investment, one of the biggest highlights, was economic development and investment around the city. The private sector invested more than $60 million toward new businesses and business expansion. Tom said nine New businesses opened and 28 expanded. The new businesses include brick and mortar opening a storefront at 1629 2nd Avenue in downtown and the artery reopening in August, 3913 14th Avenue. The city also held 20 grand openings in partnership with the Development Association of Rock Island, or DARI, D-A-R-I, Tom said, and more than $17 million has been invested in Rock Island. A few investments include awarding thousands of dollars in growing Rock Island Together grants, or GRIT, and Commercial Property Enhancement Program grants, or PEP. The two programs are fairly new. The PEP program aims to provide funds to improve the functionality of and increase the property value of commercial structures and encourage new and expanding business investment. The GRIT program provides low-interest gap financing along with a forgivable loan for projects to incentivize business attraction, expansion, and creation. Tom's also uh, highlighted the Rock Island Downtown Alliance, which launched in response to the Downtown Special Service Area. He said it was a private-public partnership meant to improve the quality of life in downtown and to facilitate downtown grown. Jack Cullen, the downtown 
Alliance director told the Quad City Times-Dispatch Argus that the Alliance was excited to finally have boots on the ground in downtown. Most of the focus, he said, has been on maintenance, such as cleaning and finding ways to spruce up downtown. We have a dedicated team, Colin said. Colin also highlighted how a lot of work in the downtown couldn't be done without the collaboration of public works, the police department, the city's economic development team, and other public officials. DeAndre Robinson is the operations manager for the Downtown Alliance and focuses on the maintenance and day-to-day -day operations. This spring, the city and the Downtown Alliance will break ground on the $7.4 million rebuild downtown streetscaping project. The project consists of reconstructing the 2nd Avenue pedestrian mall, a dog park, and improvements to the overall appearance of downtown. The Downtown Alliance and Quad City Arts are seeking two artists or artist teams to design and install two public mural in Arts Alley downtown. A completed request for a qualifications application is due by 5 p.m. Wednesday, February 21. Previously reported by the Quad City Times-Dispatch Argus, the project is being funded with a $3 million grant from Rebuild Illinois. $2.5 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds and $1.5 million in tax increment financing district funds. The Rock Island Activities and Fitness Center is undergoing a large remodeling project. Renovations include remodeling of the men's and women's locker rooms, new steam room and sauna, installation of new windows in the pool area, and repainting of the walls. The 95-year-old clubhouse at the Saki Golf Course also will be demolished. Saki will receive a new clubhouse and the old one will be demolished once the new one is completed. Project cost about $1 million, 900000 of that, which will be covered by a grant the city received. A new $20 million YWCA is under construction on 5th Avenue. Six new projects are planned for the city this year, that total $11 million and a steam lab is under construction at the Martha Luther King Center that will provide the community with the chance to explore robotics, drones, 3D printing, laser cutting, and more. Other ongoing and future projects include redredging and renovating Sunset Marina, renovating and updating City Hall and Council Chambers, and replacing water meters. The water meter updates, Tom's uh, said, will eventually let the city switch to monthly utility billing rather than every three months. Projects accomplished in 2023 include the makeover of um, Denkman Park, including the installation of ADA accessible sidewalks and a new concrete basketball court, six new tennis courts with pickleball striping at Lincoln Park, six new pickleball courts at Mel McKay Park, funded from ARPA and a grant from the state. Other completed projects include the police department implementing an automated license plate reader system, bringing back a school resource officer with the Rock Island um, Milan School District, and opening a third library location on 30th Street. The fire department also received two engines, with one that was planned for this year. Late in 2023, two fire engines were suddenly put out of service because of problems with their frames. One of the two new fire engines was budgeted for 2024. The out-of-service engines were at least 20 years old. 
The projects and updates, Thomas said, have been a long time coming and have been in the works for years. He said, I guess we hang on to things for a whole, for a whole round here, getting a laugh from the room. Hmm. The city police department also plans to implement a new program similar to Davenport's in addressing gun violence. In collaboration with the Davenport Police Department and Family Resources, the group violence intervention program Davenport uses was brought over to Rock Island. Group violence intervention looks at the root causes of gun violence and how best to address them to help lower recidivism and gun violence. Funding has been secured, Tom said, to enter into a partnership with the National Network for Safer Communities to begin implementation of the program this year. City also began implementing a new app called C-Click Fix for residents to easily address, communicate and address concerns for non-emergency related issues. We want to be more mobile ready, easy and accessible for the public to be able to get information about the city or do business with the city, Tom said. Also from the front page of the Quad City Times, county building may aid homeless. This Scott County property being proposed for an outreach clinic. The story is written by Sarah Watson. A portion of a Scott County-owned building on 4th Street in Davenport could become the new home for Community Healthcare Inc.'s outreach clinic. Community Healthcare Inc., a federally qualified health center, currently operates a mobile unit that primarily services medical needs of the homeless and transient population in western downtown Davenport. As winter approached, leaders at Community Healthcare began looking for a physical permanent space for the mobile clinic services and reached out to the county about leasing space at 902 West 4th Street at a facility adjacent to the Burke Cleaners property. We're currently in that area already with our mobile units. This allows our teams to get inside out of the cold. Community Health Care CEO's CARES CEO Tom Bowman told the Board of Supervisors this past week. The clinic's proximity to the Humility Homes and Services Emergency Shelter food sites, and other services has been effective in reducing calls for ambulance services and the amount of people going to the hospital for primary care, Bowman said. He continued, we've just had really good results being closer to where people are in the community that need our care. Community health care would lease the north 1,000 square feet of the building, which includes office space, a break room, and restrooms, said Scott County Facility and Support Services Director Tammy Speedle. The county uses that portion of the building for storage only. The county would continue to use the vehicle bay on the south side of the property, Speedle said, which stores salt, a diesel vehicle, and space to wash off county vehicles after a snow event. The lease would last five years and cost $300 a month, plus utilities for the building, Speedle told the supervisors. Bowman told the supervisors it was adequate space for what community health care needs to operate an outreach unit. Bowman said it's not a high-volume clinic, and it would typically see 10 to 15 patients a day on a daily basis. People can get checkups there and pick up medication if they need it. Bowman said while its location was designed to serve the homeless population, anyone could use it, similar to its other clinics. Its hours are mostly during the day, Bowman said. 
He said, it's just really a convenient location and right in the heart where we need it to be to reach the people that we need to reach, end quote. Supervisors will hold a public hearing on the proposed lease at 5 p.m. February 1st during the board's regular meeting. Following the public hearing, the next cycle, Speedle said the board would officially vote on whether to approve the lease. Supervisors expressed support for leasing the space to community health care, with Chair Ken Beck calling it an, quote, excellent use, end quote, for an underutilized county building. And I'll read another short story from that same front page. ADM facing accounting investigation. An accounting investigation is underway at Archer Daniels Midland, and the top financial executive at the agribusiness giant has been placed on administrative leave. The company postponed the release of its annual and quarterly financial reports that were scheduled for Tuesday, and shares of the Chicago company tumbled 21% at the opening bell on Monday. Archer Daniels Midland Company said it's working with outside counsel and the audit committee of the company board to complete an investigation of accounting practices within its nutrition business, and it pulled guidance for the unit. ADM also adjusted its earnings expectations for the year. After projecting per-share earnings of $7 for 2023 in October, the company now says it expects earnings of more than $6.90 per share. ADM said that an investigation was initially in response to a voluntary document request by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Chief Financial Officer Vikram Luther was placed on leave, effective immediately. The company said late Sunday that it was cooperating with the SEC. The board takes these matters very seriously, Terry Crews, lead director, said in a prepared statement. Pending the outcome of the investigation, the board determined that it was advisable to place Mr. Luther on administrative leave. ADM named Ismail Roig as interim CFO. Roig joined Archer, Daniel, Archer Daniels Midland in 2004. ADM was the subject of a nonfiction book titled The Informant in 2000 and an ensuing film starring Matt Damon about a 1990s price-fixing scheme for the animal feed additive lysine. Three ADM executives were convicted and the company paid about $100 million in fines. And to complete the front page, this is the article entitled Arrested Woman Lived at Site of Homicide. She's being held on bonds totaling $2.02 million. Tom Lowy and Thomas Geyer wrote this. A Davenport woman arrested late Thursday and charged with being a felon in a possession of a firearm was living in the duplex where two people were found dead. It is not known if the arrest of Andrea Maria Pieto is related to the deaths of Brian L. Goodwin and Amy M. Smith. 42-year-olds were found dead inside a house in the 5200 block of North Division Street in Davenport. The 26-year-old Prieto's arrest record lists her as living at the same address. She was arrested at 11.51 p.m. Thursday, according to the affidavit. She did knowingly possess a loaded firearm while seated in the passenger compartment of a 2015 Ford Explorer. Pietro has a felony conviction of second-degree theft in Scott County and has multiple felony convictions in Iowa and Illinois. She is being held on a toll of $2.02 million bond, which includes 
$1 million bond for the possession of a firearm charge and another $1 million bond for a probation violation. She also was wanted in Rock Island County for driving on a suspended license and operating an uninsured vehicle. Goodwin and Smith were found dead in the home after a fire was extinguished in the two-family, one-story conversion built in 1979. Davenport police had been to the address hours before the fire. A call for service occurred at 11.46 p.m. Monday, January 15, according to the service logs. Call was listed as a report of a domestic disturbance or violence, but friends of Goodwin say the report was incorrectly recorded and was actually a well-being check. It is not clear if police officers made contact with Goodwin or anyone else at the home during the call. Firefighters were called at 3.55 a.m. Tuesday, just over four hours after the first call, to a report of a fire at the residence. Two calls came after the blaze was extinguished and the bodies were found. The first was made at 7.55 a.m. on Tuesday and the other at 12.50 p.m. Both were reports of theft, larceny, the logs state. The logs, did not, did, uh, the logs do not say what situation authorities found when they arrived, whether anyone was arrested in relation to any of the three calls or whether they were related to the investigation of the deaths or the fire. The murders sent shockwaves through the members of the community who knew Goodwin. They said they feared further fallout and asked to remain anonymous while the police tried to find the person or persons who killed their friend. At one time, Goodwin was an employee of Scott County, and Fred say, friends say he was married and raised three sons. They described him as kind and generous. He did have addiction issues, but he always got help and always tried to do the right thing for his family and friends, said a friend who knew Goodwin for three decades. He was doing okay, and then he just disappeared. It seemed like his life just went out of control. In September of 2023, police sought a search warrant for Goodwin and the Division Street address. According to court records, authorities allege officers recovered 58.4 grams of suspected crystal methamphetamine, 2 grams of suspected heroin, and 2 digital scales. The warrant stated the utilities for the apartment were in Goodwin's name. The police sought the other search warrant in August of 2023, using it to search a room at Bettendorf's Isle Casino Hotel, court's record state. Authorities allege the room was registered to Goodwin, and officers recovered raw, recovered raw marijuana with a total package weight of more than 46 grams. Police also found cocaine with just under a gram of total package weight, a metal container with methamphetamine residue inside, and glass bowl also containing meth residue, according to court records. At the time of the search, there was no one in the room. Friends said news of the search warrant and that Goodwin had not been arrested after the searches had spread fear through those who knew him. Those search warrants will lead some people to make assumptions about Brian Goodwin and that will put people in danger, one of Goodwin's friends said. I think it's responsible that those search warrants were concluded in the story about his death. He wasn't arrested for anything. You're basically smearing a guy. Brian Goodwin was a really good person. He doesn't deserve any of this. Smith was never named in either of the search warrants. Goodwin's friends who spoke with the Quad City Times said they did not know her. I have no idea who she is or what her relationship with Brian Goodwin was, one of Goodwin's friends said. Smith did have a criminal record. 2018, she received a suspended sentence in Clinton County District Court and forgery in possession of a firearm by a felon. She was arrested in 2021, charged with first-degree theft after being found in possession of a stolen trunk 
and Camper. She pleaded guilty to a pair of first-degree theft charges. Danielle Anderson is Smith's sister. She declined to offer much detail about Smith's life, but did issue a statement Friday. Our family is devastated by this tragedy, and we are grappling with the deep loss of a cherished family member, Anderson said in the statement. She went on to say, Smith was a loving daughter, sister, mom, and friend whose vibrant spirit touched the lives of all who knew her. Her kindness, free spirit, and defiant nature will be deeply missed. We are grateful for the outpouring of support from friends and community during this incredibly difficult time, end quote. Anderson and other members of Smith's family requested privacy as they moored, mourned her and possessed the circumstances of her death. We trust that the authorities are diligently working to bring those responsible to justice, the statement said. Turning to the local section of the newspaper, USPS may change facilities role. Public, public ideas are sought on proposed change at Milan Center. This is written by Gretchen Teske. The U.S. Postal Service plans to hold a public meeting next month to discuss proposed changes to the Quad Cities Processing Distribution Center in Milan. As part of a $40 billion investment strategy to upgrade and improve the postal processing, transportation, and delivery network, USPS is conducting an evaluation of current operations and potential future uses of the facility. A public meeting to discuss the proposed changes is set for noon, Tuesday, February 6th, at the Camden Center, located at 2701 First Street East in Milan. USPS plans to share the initial results of the study and allow members of the community to provide feedback and perspectives on the initial findings of the Mail Processing Facility Review, the MPFR. A summary of the MPFR will be posted on about.usps.com at least one week before the meeting. Members of the local community may submit written comments online through February 21st. The public's input will be considered before a final decision is made according to a Monday news release. An initial survey of the Milan facility determined the Quad Cities facility should stay open but become a local processing center, meaning the center would process letters and flat parcels. These will be sent to individual carrier routes in the region. Currently, the facility is a processing and distribution center where the facility sorts all mail and packages before being sent to other regions as well as sorting packages for delivery in the regional area. Under the new plan, some of these mail processing operations will be transferred to the processing center in Des Moines, according to a news release. Aggregating local mail and packages with those from other areas going to the same places may provide better service and be more cost-effective, USPS said in the release. In a quote, the Postal Service will work closely with its unions and management associations throughout the facility review and will continually monitor the impact of any changes that are implemented and will adjust plans as necessary and appropriate. That was the quote from the USPS in the news release. I'll go ahead and pick up another hopefully fairly short article here too. Actually, let's go to the bottom of the page, from the top of the page to the bottom. Um, Public Education Union, the executive director, ISEA, picks Koi Markhart 
Marquardt to lead the group. This is written by Olivia Allen. Coy Marquardt will be the new executive director for the Iowa State Education Association. ISEA, the state's largest public education union, <coughs> excuse me, announced the move on Monday. Marquardt will step into the role on March 1st formerly serving as the ISEA's Associate Executive Director of Field Services since 2016. Coy is, passionate, is a passionate advocate for educators and students, and his deep understanding of the challenges and opportunities facing ed, public education in Iowa makes him the perfect person to lead ISEA into the future. That was ISEA President Mike Baranek. He also continued to say his proven track record in bargaining, recertification, and membership engagement will be invaluable. Marquardt has more than two decades of experience in public education, beginning as a special education paraprofessional and later a junior high school teacher. In 2006, Marquardt joined the ISEA as an UNISERV director for the Cedar Rapids and Iowa City region. According to an ISEA release, in his previous role, Marquardt worked to support ISEA's local affiliates, attract and retain new members, and develop innovative programming. He said in the release, I am incredibly honored to be chosen as ISEA's next executive director. I have dedicated my career to fighting for the best possible education for every child in Iowa. I am excited to continue working alongside our dedicated members, promoting and protecting our profession, students, and public schools. Marquardt also gave kudos to his predecessor, Mary Jane Cobb, acknowledging he has, quote, large shoes to fill, end quote. He continued talking about Cobb, saying she has successfully led our organization for more than 15 years. Her passion and commitment to ISEA members and students have helped push ISEA into the powerhouse we are today. I look forward to continuing her legacy of excellence, he said. The ISEA release adds that Marquardt's appointment comes at a, quote, critical time for public education in Iowa, end quote, citing ongoing teacher shortages, funding declines, and an, quote, increasingly diverse student population. Marquardt is committed to working with ISEA members, policymakers, and community stakeholders to address these challenges and ensure that every student has the opportunity to reach their full potential, the release says in closing. Okay, a couple more here before we get into obituaries. I'm going to just kind of give you the highlights here. It's a Scott from Scott County. Shapveld picked to lead planning and development written by Sarah Watson. I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs. He just says Scott County hired Greg Schapfeld, the contracted Eldridge City engineer, to lead its planning and development department, which has been without a director since August. And that comes at a point, the moment for carbon capture pipelines at the county level. And the other one I want to read to you about here is uh, CBI Bank and Trust. Seek name new leader in Muscatine. He's a veteran banker to succeed Kistler, as president on December 31st. Last week, and it's written by Andre Grubach, last week the board of directors of Central Bank Shares Incorporated 
CBI Bank and Trust and FNM Bank's parent company announced it has hired Dwayne Seek as president of CBI Bank and Trust, and Seek is succeeding Greg Kistler, current president and CEO of Central Bank Shares and CEO of CBI Bank and Trust. He's retiring on December 31st, 2024. Dwayne is uniquely qualified to succeed Greg, who has been our CEO since 2010. The opportunity for them to work together over the coming year will ensure a smooth transition for the leadership of our company. Dan Steen, chairman of the board of, of uh, Central Brankshire said in a public statement. And I think that was about it. Oh, other than to say that um, Seek said in a public statement following the announcement, I am looking forward to working with such a talented and experienced team at CBI who put our clients first. The team clearly understands and knows that community banking, when done well, acts as the lifeblood that preserves and strengthens the health of businesses and families in our communities. That pretty much wraps that up for there. Do we want to do a obituary thing? Uh, Yeah, we'll just um, have our little um, announcement that you are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Services for the Blind. And then we will get to the obituaries. I'll go ahead and just do the first one and then turn it over to Doug for the next one. All right. Larry E. McElben of Bettendorf. Larry E. McElben, 83, a resident of Bettendorf, died on Wednesday, January 17th at Unity Point Health in Bettendorf. A service to celebrate his life will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, January 25th at the Waterfront Convention Center, which is located at 2021 State Street in Bettendorf. The visitation will be from 2 to 6 p.m. on Wednesday at the Waterfront. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Bettendorf Parks Foundation, the Quad City Honor Flight, or the American Heart Association. McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home of Bettendorf is assisting the family with arrangements. Larry was born on August 5, 1940, the son of Elmer and Ima Bangert McElben. He grew, up in, he grew up in Durant, graduated from high school, and then attended Iowa State Teachers College in the pre-mortuary science program. Two years into the program, the U.S. government interrupted his studies and called him to the military service with the U.S. Navy. The Navy sent Larry to be trained as a hospital corpsman with the Marine Corps. After two years of service, he was honorably discharged in 1962 and returned home to begin civilian life. On August 20, 20, 1966, he was united in marriage to Carolyn M. Lloyd in Davenport. Larry was a banker for many years. His career took him from the Bettendorf Bank, Norwest Bank, Wells Fargo Bank, and ultimately the IH Mississippi Valley Credit Union, where he retired several years ago. Throughout his career, Larry understood the importance of public service and easily connected with others. He has been president of the Bettendorf JCs and the Bettendorf Chamber of Commerce, where he served for many years as an ambassador. Larry had also been a member of the Bettendorf and Quad City Morning Optimists Club, the Bettendorf Kiwanis Club, and had served as district chairman for the Boy Scouts of America. He was a tireless volunteer and devoted countless hours to the betterment of Bettendorf. 
It seemed that wherever help was needed, Larry was there. Larry was also an elected member of the Bettendorf Park Board, was active with the annual Bettendorf Fourth of July Committee, volunteered as a poll worker, donated his time at the annual John Deere Golf Classic, was a founding member of the Bettendorf Business Network, and was a longtime member of the Durant American Legion Post 430. Larry left an indelible mark on the city of Bettendorf, and even though he has left us, his work and love for his community will live on well into the future. Condolences may be expressed to the family by viewing Larry's obituary at mcginnis-chambers.com. Michael Sidney Stemlar, 67 years old, a resident of Davenport, died peacefully in Davenport on January 19. Visitation for Mike will be held from 4 until 6 p.m. Wednesday, the 24th, at the Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home. Private service will follow with Mike laid to rest at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Davenport. Mike Sid Pike um, Stemlar was born July 15 of 56, the son of John Sidney Stemlar and Barbara Kramer Stemlar. With Donnie Osmond, with Donnie Osmond, good looks. There's a picture of him in the paper, and I can see why. And widely known as Sid the Kid, Mike graduated from West High School in 1974 and the University of Iowa in 1978. In high school, he was a star basketball player, letterman, member of the 1974 Iowa State Boys Basketball Tournament team. After college, he was a regular in pickup basketball at the YMCA, where his moves were legendary. Mike had an extensive career in banking and eventually commercial real estate where he was always doing a deal. The love of Mike's life was his daughter, Elizabeth, whom he spoke about constantly. Mike was proud of her accomplishments in track and field, drama, choir, and the life that she had built with her husband, Alex. Those left to cherish his memory include his daughter, Elizabeth, uh, spouse Alex Rankin, siblings, uh, Tom Stemler, Indianapolis, Kathy, spouse John Wigand, Glen Ridge, New Jersey, Sharon Thurikoff, Bettendorf, and Ann Stemlar, Boston, Massachusetts. His ex-wife, Luann Schwartz Stemlar, nieces and nephews, Patrick, Brooke, uh, spouse Brooke, Jack, Brooke, uh, Sydney, oh, Jack, Sydney, Grace, April, and Nick, and his beloved cousins. He was preceded in death by his parents, John Sidney Stemlar and Barbara Joyce Stemlar. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to St. Anthony's Care and Share Program, 417 North Main Street in Davenport, uh, or online at Stan, uh, Stan Honey's Davenport, S-T-A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-S-D-A-V-E-N-P-O-R-T-I-O-W-A.org. And announcements, just brief announcements. Judy Adams, 77, of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Sunday, January 21st at Unity Point Health, Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements are pending. Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory, Rock Island. Robert Bob Bennett, 91, Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Friday, January 19, at Park Vista, East Moline. Arrangements are pending at Whelan, Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island. Carol Cordes, 78, Rock Island, 
passed away January Sunday, January 21, at home, raised Mr. Penning at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory. Danny L. or Jameson, 73, of Moline, Illinois, passed away Sunday, January 14, Genesis Medical Center, Silvis, Illinois. Arrangements are pending at Went Funeral Home in Moline. Darlene King, 60, of Makokata, passed away Thursday, January 18, at home. Arrangements are pending at Carson Celebration Life Center, Makokata. William P. Larson, 70, of East Moline, uh, passed away Saturday, January 20, at Hope Creek Care Center, East Moline. Arrangements are pending at Van Ho Funeral Home, East Moline. Lubomir Advarko, Jr. of Bettendorf, passed away Friday, January 19, uh, at Select Specialty Hospital. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. And finally, Thomas Joe Parmer, P-A-R-M-E-R, 67, of Quincy, Illinois, formerly of the Quad Cities, passed away Monday, January 1 in Quincy. Arrangements pending at Duker and Howe Funeral Home in Quincy. We'll turn now to the opinion page of the Quad City Times. There is an editorial cartoon drawn by Deering. Um, It is a picture of a clock on a wall. It's a round clock on the wall. Um, The clock has no numbers on it but um, you can tell the 12, 3, 6 and 9 o'clock spots are marked by little um, notches the center of the clock shows um, oh my goodness DeSantis <laughs> DeSantis dressed up as um, well as Mickey Mouse sorry um, He's got on the uh, shorts with the buttons in the front and the big ears and the big white-gloved hands and the big white boots that you see in Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse cartoons, but it's got DeSantis's face. And the um, 12 o'clock spot on the clock is marked not with the number 12, as I said, but it says Time's Up there instead, and the um, Mickey Mouse figure of DeSantis has both hands pointing to that 12 o'clock time's up marking. I'll go ahead and read the um, view from the Boston Herald. It's another view from the Boston Herald. And the title of it is Dismissing Trump Voters, A Big Mistake. Democrats should be leaning in to listen rather than catering to young progressives. Donald Trump's blowout win in Iowa was a wake-up call for Democrats, but not for the reason they think. The reaction from the left over Trump's 51% rout in the state's Republican caucuses was expectedly agitated. Former Senator Claire McCaskill, a Democrat from Missouri, declared on MSNBC's Morning Joe that it wasn't that great of a night for Trump and that getting 50% of the vote was actually a bad thing. President Joe Biden posted to X this quote, but here's the thing, this election was always going to be you and me versus extreme MAGA Republicans. It was true yesterday and it'll be true tomorrow, end quote. And Representative Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California who is running for for the Senate, rolled out a new January 6th themed ad warning of a dire future ahead following former Trump's win in Iowa, The Hill reported. Now we face an even greater danger, the ad narrator states as video shows the New York Times headline reading, why a second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first, end quote. 
It is, to a degree, a repeat of 2016, when Trump supporters were written off as racist, sexist, hyper-religious filler in a basket of deplorables. That was in quotes. The results of election night 2016 had media and pundits reeling. As the results came in, NBC's, NBC News' Chuck Todd declared, quote, Rural America is basically screaming at us, saying, stop overlooking us, end quote. It wasn't just rural America. Trump voters across the country sent the message that they, the hardworking, taxpaying, non-elite, didn't feel like anyone was listening to them but Trump. The sloughing off of non-Democrats from the zone of political importance has only gotten worse as progressives have maneuvered their agenda to the top of the pile. Don't want an electric car? You're part of the problem. Balk at picking up the tax tab so college students can walk away from some of their loans? You just don't get it. One of the factors behind Trump's 2016 win was the silent cadre of supporters, those who didn't show up to the rallies or wave signs. They didn't want to appear with those who did, but they voted all the same. Now Democrats are repeating the same plays, casting Trump supporters as a homogeneous threat and not as diverse fellow Americans with issues worth listening to. Trump voters know it's not okay for eggs to cost $6 a dozen, no matter how much Team Joe touts Bidenomics as a good thing. They see cities and states buckling under the strain of sheltering waves of migrants to their fiscal detriment, while Biden paints a rosier border picture. Democrats in power had four years to listen, learn, and lean in. Instead, Biden appealed to and continues to appease the progressive wing of the party in a bid to remain on the good side of younger voters. Biden's poll numbers are approaching the Earth's core, with an ABC News Ipsos poll finding a 33% approval rating. Biden and co. can get with the program and start paying attention to all Americans, not just the progressive blue staters, or be in for a very rough November night in 2024. Opinion number two on the opinion page. In Murdoch's world, you don't have to make stuff up. Written by Kathleen Parker, who writes for the Washington Post. Dateline is Columbia, South Carolina. In the ever-twisting saga of Alex Murdoch, convicted almost a year ago of the brutal slaying of his wife and son, a new character has been added to the cast. A Hollywood director could have done no better than retired Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, Gene Toll, a brilliant jurist and slayer of the pompous and profane. Already, Toll has pricked the pride of Murdoch's lawyers who appeared before her last week in a pre-hearing to lay out the rules for the upcoming hearing to decide whether Murdoch will be granted a new trial in the double murders. Toll alone will make the decision. Toll was appointed to the Murdoch case after the previous judge, Clifton Newman, recused himself before retiring late last year. Newman's recusal at the behest of Murdoch's defense team was based on the judge's unfiltered contempt for the defendant as he sentenced Murdoch to two consecutive life terms. In the months since Murdoch's six-week trial ended, several other proceedings have brought him into various courthouses. In November, he pleaded guilty to 22 of more than 100 financial crimes, including fraud and money laundering, by which he 
built clients, law partners, and family members of millions of dollars. For these crimes, he had to serve at least 22 years, a practical life sentence for the 55-year-old, said state prosecutor Creighton Waters. In October, an almost miracle had seemed to land in Murdoch's lap when the South Carolina Court of Appeals agreed to send the murder case back to circuit court to consider allegations of jury tampering, implicating Colton County Clerk of Court Rebecca Hill. Three jurors told similar stories to defense attorneys Richard Harputillian and Jim Griffin, according to Harputillian. Each one allegedly said Hill had told them to ignore Murdoch's testimony. Most seriously, perhaps, she allegedly played a significant role in the dismissal of one juror known as the Egg Juror, just hours before deliberations began. The nickname was born during a brief moment of levity when Newman asked if the female juror had left anything in the jury room. She answered that she had left a dozen eggs there, and she wanted to take them with her. Allegedly, the egg lady didn't think Murdoch was guilty and spoke to at least three people outside the courtroom about the trial. This ostensibly mattered a great deal to Hill, who was penning a self-published book at the time with co-author Neil Gordon. One not guilty vote would have hung more than the jury. Things really went downhill when it was discovered that Hill had plagiarized most of her book's preface. She admitted the plagiarism, explaining that she was in a hurry to meet a deadline. Gordon then pulled the book and promised to donate its proceeds to charity. Ironically, it was Hill's book that apparently got jurors upset even to talk about her to the defense. She wrote that she knew Murdoch was guilty after she and jurors visited the family home where the murders took place. She also said she was nervous as she was about to read the verdicts aloud. I was mostly concerned about Alex being found innocent when I knew in my heart he was guilty, she wrote. This was enough to prompt the three jurors to lorry her up and speak out. They said Hill told jurors not to be fooled by Murdoch and coached them to catch his watch his body movements, warning them that he couldn't, he could cry on cue. She allegedly denied them cigarette breaks until they reached a verdict. Del deliberations lasted less than three hours. She also handed out journalist business cards to jurors and met privately with a forewoman in women's restroom, according to the defense. On January 29, the 12 jurors and Hill had been ordered to testify directly to Toll. She said the hearing would not be a trial of Hill and that she wasn't interested in the egg juror, only the 12 who actually handed down the guilty verdict. In a no-nonsense voice familiar to particularly every member of the South Carolina bar, she witheringly dismissed the defense attorney's arguments and said their witnesses would not be called. Toll also noted that, Thus far, no evidence supports any of the allegations. And, she said, Murdoch's lawyers have to prove not only improper contact between Hill and jury, but also that these interactions influence the guilty verdict. This seems an awfully high bar for the defense team to clear. Even if Toll rules against a new trial, Murdoch still has a solid case for appeal, especially given what is known about the egg juror's experience. Suffice it to say, the full story of the Murdoch trial has yet to be told. I'm going to turn to the sports section of the um, Quad City Times and just pick out a couple of phrases from two articles about local athletes. This one is Hulky 
and Ericsson are leading Alman to banner season. The Pioneers own a 20-3 and record, and the whole story is by Samir Mala. But I'm just going to, as I said, pick out a few paragraphs to give you the gist of it. The, dyna- the dynamic Alman senior duo of Claire Hulke and Audrey Erickson are playing their final season together for the 20-3 and Pioneers basketball squad. Alleman is having its best season since 2015 when the Pioneers finished 23-12, and their last winning before last winter when Hulke and Erickson led the Pioneers to a 19-14 and mark, good for the fourth in the Western Big Six Conference. Hulkey, who is currently weighing her collegiate options among North Central College as well as the much larger universities in Marquette, Illinois, and Wisconsin, is a triple sport athlete for Alman. She was the Pioneers goalkeeper for the Class 1A state runners-up last season and a middle hitter for the volleyball team. Hulkey could not pick a favorite among the trio, but has a good idea what she will be playing at the next level. And unlike Hulkey, Erickson has already made her college collegiate decision committing to Southwestern Illinois College on a basketball scholarship in October. And next fall will be the first season in which the two will be playing basketball basketball for different schools. I'll also just give you a little feel for some prep girls wrestling news. This story is about Greta Brus, B-R-U-S, and I apologize, Greta, if I'm mispronouncing your last name. Um, the story is by Matt, Co- Matt Koss, and the Bettendorf sophomore owns an unbeaten record now. But Greta Bruss had never wrestled before last season, and she admitted, in quotes, I was really confused on what to do even when I started out. The Davenport North High School sophomore has become a quick learner. Athleticism and strength were significant reasons for her immediate success. After considerable mat time in the offseason with USA Wrestling and the guidance of her coaches, Bruss's technique has vastly improved. Her better technique, coupled with a smarter approach, has translated into spectacular results this winter. And Bruss is the only ranked wrestler in her region, the Region 6 bracket, on Friday. She has her sights set on a return trip to the state tournament and is aiming for a medal in XT at Extreme Arena in Coralville in less than two weeks. Doug? Okay, I'm going to just, uh, you, some of you folks may remember Carl, uh, Mr. Sandberg, Hall of Famer Sandberg, says he has prostate cancer. He's from Chicago, Hall of Fame second baseman Ryan Sandberg. The Cubs has been diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. The 64-year-old Sandberg said Monday in a release put out by the Baseball Hall of Fame, he has started treatment. I am surrounded by my loving wife, Margaret, our incredibly supportive family, and the best medical care team and our dear friends, Sandberg said. We will continue to be positive, strong, and fight to beat this. Please keep us in your thoughts and prayers during this difficult time for me and my family. He, Sandberg, hit 285 with 282 homers, 1,061 RBIs, 344 steals, and 16 seasons in the majors. He made his big debut with the Philadelphia Phillies, or Philly, Philadelphia in 1981, appeared in 13 games with the Phillies before he traded to Chicago Cubs in January of 1982. Sandberg turned into one of the majors' best all-around performers with the Cubs. So I bring that up so you can remember the Cubs and... Uh, if you remember the Cubs, and I do, because uh, I like the Cubs, 
go get him, Cubs, and that's Sandbrook. He was a big name. Here's a note that Angie's, Angie's Bolin been selected. The Augustana volleyball player Aiden Bolin has been named the CCIW Student Athlete of the Week in the hitter category. Bolin helped the Vikings to a 2-0 record with wins over Concordia, Chicago, and Concordia, Wisconsin. In the match against Concordia, Wisconsin, Bolin hit 6-6-7 with 14 kills, three service aces, six digs, and two solo blocks. Bolin totaled 23 kills, 14 digs, four aces, four blocks, and an assist in helping the Vikings to wins over Concordia, Chicago, and Concordia, Wisconsin. The Vikings are 2-0, host Edgewood on Thursday. So there's, if you're a volleyball, if you're a volleyball person, that's uh, pretty good stuff to know. There is a uh, something here that we could tell you about that's going on. I'm going to tell you what's, what is on the tube regarding, let's say, men's basketball. Uh, FSI, FS1 has at 5.30, Butler's at Georgetown. Uh, Wisconsin is at Minnesota on BTN at 6, 6 o'clock. Loyola of Chicago is at VCU on CBSN. And 6 o'clock, Texas is at Oklahoma on ESPN. And for men's basketball, continue on at 6, Florida State at Syracuse, ESPN2, and at 6, uh, Pittsburgh's at Georgia Tech, ESPNU, 6 o'clock, Ohio State at Nebraska, Peacock, and 6, uh, 6 Kentucky at South Carolina, SECN. A lot of things going on at 6 o'clock there. And at uh, 7.30, Xavier's at Creighton, FS1. At 8 o'clock, you'll find Boston College at Virginia Tech, ACCN. 8 o'clock, you'll find Wyoming at San Diego State, CBSSN. TCU is at Oklahoma State, ESPN2, that's at 8. Michigan's at Purdue. Peacock at 8. Missouri's at Texas A&M. And uh, an SECN, FS1 has Boise State at Fresno State at 9.30. If you're into Air Force and the UNLV, you'll find them on CBSN. And um, Major League Baseball. I'm sorry, women's college basketball on BTN at 8 o'clock, Minnesota's at Wisconsin. Okay, so I'm going to just uh, kind of... I'm going to take it away from you here, Doug. <laughs> just got a couple minutes. There is an interesting story in the E-Edition Plus about vitamin D. And living in um, Iowa, we all know how important it is to get our vitamin D and how hard it is to get in the winter. Vitamin D is a pretty fascinating nutrient. To begin with, it's not even a vitamin. It's a pro-hormone, a substance our bodies convert into hormones. Vitamin D helps our bodies absorb calcium and may reduce our risk of certain chronic diseases and mental illness. Most of our daily vitamin D needs can actually come from sunlight. However, about 10% of our vitamin D needs aren't met through this process, so we need to get this portion through food. 20 micrograms for people older than four. And those who live in climates where it isn't especially sunny certain times of the year have to work a little harder. An estimated 40% of Americans have a vitamin D deficiency, which can put you at risk for depression, heart disease, osteoporosis, and obesity. Eggs are a common go-to for those looking to boost their vitamin D levels, as one large egg has 10% of our daily needs. However, there are plenty of other foods that give you even more bang for your buck, and here are six that are listed. Number one is sardines. 
Sardines pack 12% of your daily vitamin D needs and they offer much more nutritional value than that. Number two is yogurt. Yogurt is often fortified with vitamin D to help us reach our daily recommendations and it has 20% in a six ounce container. Canned tuna. Three ounces of canned tuna offers nearly 40% of your daily vitamin D needs. Orange juice is another fortified option. It is fortified with vitamin D and has about 34% of your daily dose in one cup. Milk, another fortified option. It has about 29% of your daily vitamin D need in a cup. And finally, salmon, not fortified. Salmon is a nutritional powerhouse and should definitely find its place on your plate a few times a month if possible. Three ounces of sockeye salmon gives you 112% of your daily goal for vitamin D. And that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.